0: Feelings, that's the nothing personal emotion of the day. It is Friday, February 17th and I've got a feeling you're going to like this first segment and not just because you love Barry Manilow and you're trying to get that feeling back again. Corbin Burns is a phenomenal pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers. Always in the race for Cy Young has been a part of a successful run, the most successful run for the Brewers in its history these last couple of years, even though they didn't make it last year. And he came out and gave an interview yesterday that needs explanation because it is absolutely incorrect what he said, why he said it, and everything in it is actually wrong as well. But let's be the judge together and to do it, I think we got to hear directly from him what he said and the tone in which he said it and there's there, there's no denying that the relationship is definitely definitely hurt from um you know what what perspired over the last couple weeks um yeah you know, there's there, there's really no way of getting around that um obviously we're, we're we're professionals and we're gonna go out there and, and do our job and i mean, keep doing what i can every fight every fifth day that i go out there but um you know when some of the things that are said that um you know, for instance basically basically put me in the forefront of, of the reason why we didn't make the postseason last year. That, I mean that's something that probably doesn't need to be said. You know, we can go go about a hearing without having to do that. Um so that's kinda one of those things that, you know obviously they, you know they, there was no attacking of, of character of you know person of who I was, but um just the just the some of the stuff that was said that you know definitely didn't need to be um said is is, is something that you know I think kinda disappointed everyone. First of all he needs to fire his agent then he needs to fire his high school grammar teacher it's not that anything perspired i don't see anyone sweating i think he meant transpired but let's not quibble over words let's talk about really what's happening here the arbitration system quick primer when you're in the league for over three years some players if two years you get to go to a hearing if you don't like what the team is offering to pay you and you want more You can negotiate and then if you can't come to a deal, you sit in front of three people and you go, it's a long table. It's always a rectangular table. You've got the team on one side and you've got the players and the players association on the other. And there's an order in which you sit. The closest to the three arbitrators who are at the head of the table is always the person arguing the case. We had our general counsel do it. The first person we hired to do it was actually Dan Hallam. We got Dan Hallam started. He's now the deputy commissioner of Major League Baseball, but we, I hired him because he was a lawyer at Proskauer. Proskauer were the lawyers we used for all of our transactions all throughout the years with the best sports attorney in the world. His name is Wayne Katz. He is the man who does all the work at Proskauer, no matter what they may tell you, he does it all. And so. We had Dan Hallam and we interviewed him and we said, how about you, Dan? And that was the start of his career. Sorry, Dan. So you've got the lawyer who sits right at the end. Then we have the general manager, then the team president. I never missed an arbitration hearing. And then you've got the assistant GM. who We brought in Mike Hill, who is next to us. We took the arbitrations very seriously because so did the Players Association. You've got the person arguing for the player across from who's arguing for the team. Then you've got the player, then the agent, cause very rare that the actual agent does the arguing. And then you've got a member of the players association sitting across from a member of the commissioner's office. You've got a direct case and then a rebuttal. So the way the hearing works is, is that first you present the direct case and you do it from a book. You prepare an arbitration book that is quite long. It has slides in it. And I'm gonna get to you what is in those slides. Then there's a break, then the other side presents, then there's a break. And during the break, you come up with your rebuttal, which is where you introduce evidence that everything that the other side said is wrong. Then the other side rebuts what you've said, and then you shake hands, say goodbye. And then the next day you get a ruling. The ruling in an arbitration case, you cannot split it. You either rule for the team or for the player. The evidence that's actually put in to start with is the contract that the player will sign with everything filled out except for the dollar amount. So it's a regular uniform player contract. And what the arbitrators do is they actually fill in either the team number or the player number and they hand it back. And that's how you know who wins. Possession arrow is a big thing in arbitration. There's no way that a team will win every arbitration hearing. There's no way the players will win every arbitration hearing because arbitrators can be excused by either side if either side is unhappy with their performance, And if it's too lopsided, then an arbitrator will be fired. And these arbitrators love it. They get to go to Florida, Arizona. They get to be in the room where it happens. They get to make decisions. Oh, and by the way, they get paid a pretty penny because their hourly rate is not Ben Affleck's at Dunkin' Donuts. During the course of arbitration, there are rules. The rules come from the collective bargaining agreement about what can be presented, what is evidence. Let me give you an example. When you are a first time arbitration eligible second baseman or pitcher, you get compared to salaries of other first time eligible arbitration eligible second basemen previously who have been awarded a salary in arbitration. Each side tries to argue why that number is either too low or too high and what the difference is between that player and this current player. You go through all the stats, you go through all of the bulk, meaning how many games the player has played, what their regular stats are, like home runs and RBI or stolen bases, but you go through war, you go through expected batting average, batting average of balls in play, any statistic that anybody inside a nerd nerd cave can come up with, and each side presents which players should be a comp and which players shouldn't. And the way arbitration numbers are submitted, like in Corbin Burns' case, the team wanted to pay him $10.01 million. Corbin Burns responded, he wanted to get paid $10.75 million. It is very strategic what you choose because what the arbitrators are doing is they are taking the midpoint of the two submissions and deciding, does the player deserve to be below the midpoint or above the midpoint? You don't argue if you are Corbin Burns that you deserve 10.75. You argue if you're Corbin Burns that you deserve 10.4. Let's just say that that's the middle of 10.75 and 10.0, but it's really not. Let's say it's 375, so Uh, 10.376, let's say, is what he's arguing. But don't worry about the math because that's how arbitrators decide who wins and loses based on the midpoint. Then you introduce other factors that are taken into account that are delineated in the collective bargaining agreement. Special accomplishments of the player. Was he an all-star? Was he an MVP? Team accomplishments. Did the team make the playoffs? Was the team in the winning the division? Did the team win a World Series? Other factors that include team attendance. We always got to argue in every Marlins arbitration, all the special factors and accomplishments, no playoffs. We couldn't do that with Miguel Cabrera. No awards, we could do that with almost everybody. And our attendance sucked. So special accomplishments are not a huge part of the arbitration decision that arbitrators make, but it is definitely a factor. The reason why arbitration is so important is that the Players Association and the Commissioner's Office are fighting tooth and nail to keep salaries going higher or keep salaries the same, the same or going lower, depending on which side. So precedent becomes the main point because if Corbin Burns wins arbitration, his number is 10.75, and the next time there is a pitcher who is eligible the way he's eligible, they get to argue and say his number was 10.75, even if the arbitrators believed his number really was 10.4, but they had to offer him 10.75 because you have to go one side or the other. That then has salaries creeping up. I have told you 29 times, here goes number 30, players do not get their feelings hurt in arbitration and guess unless 4869 players do not get their feelings hurt in arbitration unless they are mentally weak i am calling corbin burns mentally weak for the following reason did he think that going into the room that it was all going to be raspberries and dandelions that the Brewers were gonna sit there and say, there is no doubt that Corbin Burns is the best player on our team, he deserves the 10-7-5. No, you go in and explain all the different things. Yes, he made 33 starts, that was first in baseball. Yes, he struck out 243 people, first in the NL. Yes, his ERA was under three. Yes, he was an all-star, all of that is true. But you argue what he's done, not just last year as the platform year, but during the course of his career and you're comparing him to the salaries of other players who have similar if not better stats or you're showing players who have worse stats what they got paid and how his stats while better are not so much better that he deserves that level of compensation this is arbitration 101 corbin burns was not prepared by his agent that's why i should fire him Corbin Burns is not gonna make a free agent decision based on the fact that his feelings got hurt or the fact that the relationship is harmed. Corbin Burns is not gonna be traded by the Brewers because they're so concerned that he's unhappy. Corbin Burns will tow the rubber opening day and win the game because that's what professional players do and he acknowledged that. Now, when he tells you that they basically put me in the forefront, basically is a loaded word, I've gone to arbitration over the word basically. I've spent weeks on the stand where I said something was basically finished, which means that's not finished, it's just basically finished. Or it is finished because it's basically finished, means you're totally finished. Depends on which side you are, how you argue. But let's just say they didn't basically put him in the forefront. Let's say they sat right across from him and said, even though you don't talk to the player, That's the rule in arbitration. You look at the arbitrators. You don't look at the player. Team president, I always looked at the player. But the person arguing is arguing toward the judge, the three arbitrators. Let's just pretend that they said that Corbin Burns was a factor in why they didn't make the postseason. Was he on the team? There are 26 factors. Then I could add the GM, I could add the president, I could add the owner. So I'm gonna go 29. I'm gonna add the hitting coach just for fun, 30. You know what, pitching coach, 32. Bullpen catcher, 33. Every member of the traveling party is responsible for a team's success and a team's failure. And when you've got the ability to argue a point, of course you're gonna do it. Does that mean that we really believed everything we said? Of course not. You think that I walked into Miguel Cabrera's arbitration, and I said, God, this guy sucks absolutely not i said this guy sucks just enough that he doesn't deserve that level of payroll that level of salary i feel zero for corbin burns it's the process i've got one last suggestion if you want to call your union get rid of arbitration i'm in do you know how badly arbitration is wanted by the players association they're the ones who came up with it give me a break give me a break dana brown showed up to spring training i'm gonna give him a break i will dana brown is a first-year gm he was hired 14 hours ago he's a person who was hired by jim crane who if you listen to a, a nothing personal samson sit down that may be coming your way one of these short days you may learn about an organization called the houston astros there's a book called winning fixes everything by evan Drelich. We're gonna talk about that on a show. We may even get Evandrelick, how cool would that be? All of that said, I mean, of course I know we're getting him, otherwise I wouldn't even say it. Preview, sit down assuming he shows up with Evandrelick coming your way tomorrow. But all of that said, the Houston Astros have operated a certain way. Jim Crane hired a GM named Dana Brown, who is not a GM. Dana Brown, however, had to meet the media. And Dana Brown said, we're in the keeping business. Well, that's funny. I'd like to say that we're either in the winning business or we're in the profit business, but we're in the keeping business. There's one thing that teams don't do, and that's keep their players. It's not just the Marlins. It's not just the Expos. It's every team. Did you see how many Astros players from last year's World Championship were on the team in 2017? Where's Garrett Cole? Yankees. Justin Verlander? Mets. Carlos Correa? Twins. George Springer? Blue Jays. Charlie Morton? Charlie Morton? Charlie Morton? Can we have a buffering problem, Coco, while you tell me that he's on the Braves? <laughs> Dana Brown was talking about Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman, and he said that these guys should retire here. They should be in Houston for life, man. No. Don't go into Houston, A, pretending you have power, which you don't, and then on top of that thinking that you are going to change what they've been doing because, by the way, what they've been doing pre-Lunao, post-Lunao, with Lunao is winning. Lots of it. And they've been winning by not keeping players. You're automatically going to sign Altuve and Bregman to lifetime contracts? How many Astros are you going to sign to lifetime contracts? By the way, you're the GM of a team that let Carlos Correa go, brought in a rookie, and won a World Series, and he won the World Series MVP and the LCS MVP. So when you're given things to say, because you meet with your PR department. We're seeing a lot of the GMs, the commissioner, we talked about it on yesterday's show, everybody's meeting the media now, because this is the time of year when it's the big first time pitchers and catchers reporting. It's exciting. Everyone's in. You don't ever give your fan base the notion that something's going to happen. If you don't know for sure it's going to happen. You are setting them up to be disappointed. And believe me, fans are disappointed enough by the performance on the field the majority of the time. Why would you give them more fodder? Why would you create a headline like that? We're in the keeping business. No, you're not. So spring training is the time where the teams get ready for the regular season. God, that was value added. Aren't you happy you tuned in live today? Nothing personal with David Sampson. Spring training is where you don't want injuries and distractions, call back to yesterday's show. But it's also when the players are getting into their routine. And what's tough about spring training has always been that the afternoon game routine is different from the night game routine. So you try to schedule some night games toward the end of spring training so the players can get used to what they like to do, which is sleep till noon, get to the ballpark at 5, play at 7.30. But in spring training, they're getting to the ballpark at 7 a.m. and they don't like that. It makes them very, very tired. Spring training happens to be exhausting. And in the beginning of spring training, when games start next week, you'll notice that some players get one at-bat, some players get two at-bats, and then there's a mass exodus toward the outfield wall. They get changed, they leave. And if you gave them $20 million to tell you who won the game that day, they will have no idea. But one of you asked me a question about some other part of spring training. You know what I want. (laughs) I want to talk to Samson. So you wanna to talk to Samson. It's Friday. I may watch Half-Baked this weekend. To watch Half-Baked the movie, it's always good to be 33 baked at least. There's a character named Samson and everyone wants to talk to him. If you wanna to talk to me, get to my Twitter, David P. Samson, and ask me a question. Hi, David. Hello. It may be a bit early for this question. I actually am always awake, so it's never too early. But how does split squads work? Is there a strategy for the split? Are the coaches managers trying to see who meshes with who? Did I use who and whom correctly there? Let's start with the last part. Nope. Can I teach everyone right now, if you don't mind the difference between who and whom, and I don't need to get into subject versus object. I just want to give you a trick and this is it. Ready? If you can put him. In the sentence, him ends with M, put the M at the end of who. So, ready? Are the coaches managers trying to see who meshes with who? Let's switch that. Are the coaches trying to see who meshes with him? Now don't tell me about him and her and she, it's not, this is not gender, but that makes sense, right? Trying to see who meshes with him you wouldn't say are they trying to see who meshes with he so if it's trying to see who meshes with him put the m at the end and you've got whom so it's trying to see who meshes with whom that's why you use whom there not who now you've got the trick okay now split squad this is good we have a deal where we get a certain number of home games in spring training We have a deal with the public entity who financed the spring training stadia, and we want as many home games as possible because home games mean revenue for all the people coming from the north to the south or Miami's case coming from the south to the north. They come to games, they watch, you want home games. Everybody wants home games. So you have to play road games too. So the general split is that you play half on the road and half at home. However, There are more pitchers who need work, more players who need at-bats than there are games in a spring training season. So some days, teams play twice. You're playing a game at home, and at the same time, you're playing a game on the road. The Marlins would spring train in Jupiter. It used to be the Nationals would spring train in Vieira. There are teams who spring train on the west side of Florida. There are bus rides that players take and here's the general rule when spring training facilities are far away your best players don't go to those road games mlb has a rule that you need to have a representative lineup when you go on the road to a team because people in theory when the marlins are playing the yankees are coming to see the yankees and they want to see stanton and judge and jeter and boone and everybody else and then you get there and you look at the lineup and you're the Cleveland Indians guy for Major League saying, who are these guys? And then we call Major League Baseball and say, the Yankees suck, man. They didn't send a representative lineup. And there's a rule of what a representative lineup is. And it's the worst rule in baseball. If a player's been at the Major League level and had a job and appeared in a game or two, that counts as a big leaguer. And if you have six big leaguers, that's a representative lineup. So you can sit all your superstars, let them play the home game, not the road game because you wanna get paid for more people coming to your home game, except then the team that has you on the road is angry because they're playing a team of no ones. How do you decide who plays for which team? Veterans don't like being on the road. So the majority of veterans do not go to a road game. Pitchers, when we have a pitcher in our rotation, And we're playing a team in our division for one of the sides of a split squad and one of our teams out of division in another game of the split squad, we will send that starting pitcher to pitch against the team, not in our division. If there is a pitcher pitching against us in one of the games who we want certain of our hitters to face, we'll send those hitters. So we do it based on matchups and we do it based on who's starting quick side note for you all of the teams are going to start making their big announcements of who their opening day starters are and the managers are going to tell you oh we're not sure yet who the opening day starters are they're all lying to you we knew our opening day starter from the minute spring training started every year except the mark hendrickson year and even then we knew it would be mark hendrickson and we were so despondent we were hoping for an injury i'm just kidding mark love you man god that guy was tall i think he played in the nba also So we line up the starters from day one of spring training, and we go backwards from opening day, every five days, we work in one or two extra days off, depending on the pitcher, we speak to the pitcher about it, we just don't announce it. And we don't announce it for strategic reasons that are neither strategic nor even smart, because we don't want other teams knowing what our rotation is. Do you know it doesn't really matter? because your number one starter becomes your number six starter and then your number 11 starter. And then there's off days and there's switches and there's injuries and there's rainouts, and there's double headers, whatever there is. Of course, it's marketing where you say, this is his seventh opening day start trying to show that we've had continuity or what a great honor it is. The Mets have a big decision to make. Side note, Coke, I just thought of this. People are beginning to talk about Scherzer Verlander. You can book it here. Coca, this is a wait to see that is not part of the show, but here it goes. Max Scherzer, if not injured, Max Scherzer will be the opening day starter for the New York Mets. People are saying it should be Justin Verlander. He won the Cy Young. He's the hot new free agent signing. Forget it. You give it to Mighty Max, the guy who's been on your team. So if both players are not injured, Max Scherzer will start opening day, wait to see. So coaches and managers are not trying to see who meshes with whom. We don't even think about that when we're doing lineups at all. We are making sure that pitchers are getting their work in, hitters are getting their work in, that's it. The strategy for who goes where is based on location, it's based on opponent, and it's based on which hitters need to play that day and which pitchers need to pitch that day, that's it. There is nothing more scientific than that. Thanks for the question. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Alison Brie, and I'm going to talk to you about a new movie she did with her husband, and then we're going to talk about something that's going on in Barcelona that if it were going on in the U.S., it would be on the national news front page. We'll be right back. Good choice there, Coca, on the commercial. If you're watching this live, you just saw Sylvester Stallone sneeze. And if you're listening to this, thank you. Please tell your friends about nothing personal. You can remind them that we're live three days a week. Maybe one day we'll go to four or five. What is it, Coca? Nothing personal, five days a week, live Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. All right, I watched a movie called Somebody I Used to Know, and somebody I don't know told me to watch this. It could be one of you who's watching right now. You know I love Alison Brie. You know I love Dave Franco. Dave Franco is her husband. Dave Franco is the canceled James Franco's brother. Keep up, Dave Franco, not canceled. James Franco, canceled. They got together, wrote a movie that Dave Franco directed. It is about, see if you've heard this story before. It's about a pretty woman who's best friends with somebody who gets invited to a wedding and is in love with the groom and tries to break up the wedding by getting the groom to realize that he's still in love with her. Yeah, it's not starring Julia Roberts. I don't see Dermot Mulroney anywhere. It's not my best friend's wedding, but it certainly felt like it. Somebody I used to know is a moderately entertaining movie. Moderate in that Alison Brie is always outstanding. Moderate in that the story is sort of predictable in a way that is comforting. And moderately entertaining in that at the end, what you think is gonna happen, there is no dancing at the end of this movie. That's a callback to my best friend's wedding. But if you're looking for a movie about someone trying to break up a wedding, go to my best friend's wedding, would you please? Somebody I used to know, good effort by Dave Franco. Good job. I'm I'm guessing that they wrote this together during COVID when they were just sitting there saying to themselves, hey, honey, what do you wanna do now? I don't know, let's write a movie. Could I direct it? All right, let's look at, oh, we just saw that movie on TNT. Let's write a movie just like that. Somebody I used to know, pass. I mean, don't pass, it's Alison Brie, pass all right let's talk about barcelona and let's talk about the nba let's talk about mlb let's talk about the nfl we've been talking a lot about referees recently haven't we they are under a lot of pressure and what's interesting about referees is that when you're in the game you spend a lot of time talking to the commissioner's office and for during my time it was mostly joe torrey uh and before it was joe torrey it may have even been rob manford who i would have called when he was running the labor department And when you get a call that you don't like, when you have an issue, you speak to the league office. You don't speak to the commissioner about it. You speak to the league office and you say, listen, Angel Hernandez stinks. C.B. Buckner doesn't know the strike zone. Joe West is an absolute joke. You just talk about whatever happened during the course of a game. That was not catcher's interference. Whatever, it doesn't matter. And then you always get told the same thing. We'll look at the tape. Yeah, we saw that. Yeah, whatever. You're right. What what are we going to do? Well, can you fire the guy? Now they're in a union. We can't do it. What if we could hire a former umpire and pay that umpire to not just befriend the current umpires, but actually argue on behalf of our team and influence the calls that are made against our team so we get more calls made for our team holy crikey's that's what barcelona did he paid someone his name is enriquez Negrera. i can't roll my r's i'm white and jewish let me try again enriquez Negrera. five hundred thousand pounds a year and his job was quite simple make sure that nobody gets a PK against us make sure we don't get yellow cards and for the love of God we got to win games can you believe that that's possible do you know there was a 78 game streak in which opposing teams were not awarded a penalty kick And Barcelona got 32 penalty kicks during that same period. It would be like in a hockey season if one team had 89 power plays for them and zero against them. They had a stretch of 28 games in which players weren't even given one red card. Not one. The president of Barcelona, a guy named Josep Bartomeu, he stepped down just three years ago amid tax fraud allegations and this just came to the forefront about the referees and his quote now of course You understand the person who was hired would say, oh, I didn't influence how referees called games. Don't be ridiculous. My job was only to advise Barcelona on how to behave around specific referees. Do you think that I would pay someone 500 grand to tell me what an umpire strike zone is or whether or not there's an umpire who likes calling the low strike or the high strike? I got people who I pay 38 grand to, and I have 100 people who will take their job for 32 grand, all of whom will give me that same information none of whom have a connection to the actual umpires. And you think I'm spending 500 grand for that amount of advice? The current team president said, what are you talking about? This is totally common. Everybody's doing this. This is retaliation because we're so good that this story just came out. Otherwise it never would have come out. And the quote was fantastic. Every top club has these kind of services. Is 500,000 pounds for referees' references too much? I don't know what other elite clubs pay, to be honest. Wow. He better be right about that. He better be right that every other elite club pays a former referee half a million pounds a year in order to get references on referees. Give me a break. Can you imagine in basketball? You know, we read about this where there's issues between a certain referee and a player and the NBA says, I don't want to put that referee with that player because that referee has a personal issue with that player. When we would talk to the commissioner's office about that personal agendas, Angel doesn't like us. The answer was Angel doesn't like anybody. No, no, but he's teching me up way faster, technical fouls. He's not giving him the calls that he deserves or that he gets. And we've got the analytics to prove it. Do you know that referees and umpires how they get their postseason assignments? Same way in the NFL. The guys who work the, the Super Bowl, that's not a regular crew. That's the best at each position put together according to the analytics of how they perform during the course of the season, how many calls they missed, how many calls they got right, what their ability is to run a game, and they get postseason assignments. That's how umpiring crews are put together during the postseason. There's a pool of umpires available for the postseason, and those who grade out the best during the early rounds get to keep going and get the World Series. You sprinkle in a few rookies, you sprinkle in a few veterans, and you got yourself a crew. I used to chart NBA referees in the 90s when the Knicks, my team, were in the playoffs and in the finals in 94. I would be able to predict who is refereeing what game, because if you look at the referees over a seven-game series, you see the guys who did game one generally do game five. The guys who do game two do game Six. Three, Seven, Four may have one of the guys from one, and two new ones who get one game, getting their feet wet. There is a rotation the NBA uses. Check it out, it's true. What you don't see behind the scenes is that Adam Silver, Rob Manford, Roger Goodell, they are grading these referees, they're not doing it, they have people who are doing it, there's departments who do it. They are disciplining referees and umpires for bad calls. They call the the NBA referees actually has a Twitter handle and there's actually something called what was it the last two minute report that may be in another league or that could be basketball in baseball. There's a report that comes out about every missed call in a game, missed strike, what the percentage is, how well they're calling it without the robot ump, how good the plays were, how many times they got reviewed, how many times they got overturned. We have all that information. Of course, it's never going to be made public. Adam Silver just talked about this actually. He gave an interview where he said we don't publicize discipline for officials because we don't think that'd be appropriate of course it's not appropriate do you know that we can't even show certain things on the jumbotron because we're not allowed to show up umpires there's a whole written code of what you're allowed to do it's true as for barcelona if it is found that they actually did anything like what they're being accused of. And if there are no other teams doing it, and yet they said they did, you're going to see a major problem for Barcelona. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure it's going to be as major as FFP. I don't think they're going to lose points, get relegated, anything like that. But I sure surefire know there's going to be a fine, and there should be a fine. Half a million pounds for referee references. Are you kidding me? How am I doing on picks of the day, Coca? We're 24 and 28. Suns plus one and a half versus the Clippers was a straight loser. Terrible. Devin Booker had a good game. Kevin Durant was terrible last night. That was the problem. If Durant had just shot a little better, I think the Suns win that game. I mean, what are you going to do? Betting on Durant to play well during the Suns game for his new team, that makes a ton of sense. And don't at me. All right, we got a hockey pick tonight. It's the NBA All-Star Game. I was going to pick Sunday's game, and I was going to go with Team Giannis because he was getting two points from Team LeBron. But a couple things occurred to me. Number one, Giannis got hurt last night. He's not even going to play. Have they announced that, Coca? That Giannis is not going to play in the All-Star Game? If I'm the Milwaukee Bucks, and I'm trying to win another title, and Team Giannis has a hangnail, I would prefer him not to play in the All-Star Game. If he has something worse, which is apparently what happened last night, he is not gonna play. So therefore, the line's different. I also thought they didn't know who was gonna be on what team until Sunday. Either way, I'm going hockey. Big news came out of the hockey world last week, and now we get to talk about it. The Ottawa Senators are a team that is, uh, they've had their issues. Their owner died recently, a guy named Eugene Malnick. Eugene was an absolute nightmare. And I don't wanna speak ill of the dead because I would speak ill of the living if it were eugene melnick he ran his team like a fiefdom he ran it through fear intimidation and lack of results well now that he's dead the team is gonna be for sale because of course the kids want to sell it guess who's trying to buy the ottawa Senators? yes van wilder himself how cool is that what i think ryan reynolds needs to understand however is that the nhl and any other major North American sport is just a tiny wee bit different than Wrexham. He's putting a group together. He's gotta do something in Ottawa that he said, no problem, I've got this. He's gonna put on his Deadpool costume. He's gonna call him Blake Lively and say, hey, I got six bullets and I gotta figure out a way to get several hundred million because we need to build a new arena and he's gonna take out his swords, he's gonna get in the taxi cab, and he's gonna realize, like Derek Jeter did, that just because your name is Ryan Reynolds, and just because you're funny as heck, yes you are, does not mean that they're gonna bend over like Beckham to give you public money. I'm not saying I'm available, Ryan, but just for a little walk on part in Deadpool 3, I could give you a few pointers about how to get it done in Canada. I mean the US. I can't get it done in Canada. Who can get it done in Canada? Senators over the Blackhawks. Sorry. The Senators are actually playing much better this year. Finally, their young guys got a little older. So we're taking the Senators over the Blackhawks as our pick of the day. All right, it's Friday, and I don't ever like going into the weekend on a bad note. However, I need to tell you about something that happened in Miami and you may have read about it, you may not have read about it. And I'm gonna leave you with a few questions that I have. I've been accused of being a one-issue person, which I am not in any way. There are one-issue voters like taxes or Israel can be a one-issue voter, pro-choice, anti-choice. When you have one issue and you will vote for a candidate based on what that candidate does in that one issue, that is how you vote, that's called the one-issue voter. I am not a one-issue voter by any stretch. I'm a multiple issue voter. One issue that does matter to me, however, is hate crimes. And I don't mean just anti-Semitism. I'm talking about any hate crimes against any group of people, black, Asian, white, Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, Episcopalian, anything doesn't matter to me. I don't understand and will never understand why people can't just live and let live. There's a high school game that went on this week in Miami and there's video on the internet and I'm going to name the high school. And the reason I'm going to name the high school is it's, it deserves to be named actually. It's a, I'm totally losing it. It's called Archbishop Coleman Carroll High School in Miami. Archbishop Coleman Carroll High School. I'm talking to you. Anybody who has kids at that school, anybody who's a parent at that school, anybody who runs that school, Archbishop Coleman Carroll High School was playing a soccer game against a Jewish school. Jewish schools in Florida are common, they're common everywhere. Many of them are called Hillel and that means not that every student is Orthodox, it just means that their parents want them to have a Jewish education. There are even non-Jews who go to Hillel, believe it or not. It's not just for Jews. Although I think Catholic schools are probably not just for Catholics. So they're playing a soccer game, and all of a sudden there's video of members of the high school soccer team savagely beating one of the teenagers, one of the players on the Hillel team. And they're yelling, Hitler was right, effing Jew, effing K-word, the one that got Myers Leonard, kicked out of the NBA? And there is video of this. The victim was a student at Shech Hillel School. Do you know that this kid got a metal cleat lodged in his eye? That's how long the savage beating went on. Here's my question for you. Don't tell me that it's about competitive spirit and that it was all in the name of winning and losing and wanting to be competitive, there's only one explanation for that type of behavior. The explanation is that the parents of those high schoolers have taught those kids hate or they've not recognized that hate has been taught to them by other people. They've been taught rage, they've been taught hate, they've been taught intolerance, and I'd like them to be taught what it is to go through life with no education and with a loss of freedom. I want those kids tried for assault as adults. I don't want those kids going to some cushy place. I want them in jail with bars. doesn't have to be prison, let's start with jail. Why do I want this? How else are we gonna stop the hatred that so permeates our society if we don't cut it off at the head? We have to stop generations from passing hate down to other generations. It's not about yelling at referees at high school games, which makes me crazy and I've told you that I think parents and kids should suffer for the action of parents who think their kids are gonna be A-Rod or gonna be the greatest players ever or their kids are gonna be the next Mia Hamm. No, your kids aren't. Your kids likely stink. But yelling at your kid for not doing well, yelling at the referee for missing a call or making a bad call, that has a place in hell in my mind for you. But going after someone because of their religion and assaulting that person, whether it's a referee or in this case, a teenage player, There is not a place in hell that's hot enough for you. I want you to look yourself in the mirror every day and realize that you're promulgating hate in a way that you're gonna say, I don't care, I really feel that way. I don't like them Jews, I don't like them blacks, I don't like them whites, that's fine. You look yourself in the mirror and you say to yourself, you've got it right. But you're gonna get old and you're gonna die and we're gonna make sure that the generations who come after you really have it right. And until that happens, we're going to be witnessing videos like this. And if we all keep quiet about it, we are complicit in it. If you know anyone in Florida who is a part of that school, the Archbishop Coleman Carroll high school, and you don't say something that makes you part of the problem. If you know anyone at the Hillel school and you don't say something you don't give some sort of comfort, some sort of understanding to what it means to be the victim of that level of hatred, then you're part of the problem. How about if this weekend we become part of the solution? This is David Sampson, and I appreciate all of your time. This is nothing personal.